Welcome to Helium Podcast, Episode 12. We believe researchers should be able to focus their minds on building new knowledge and simplify the rest. I'm Matt Hotze. And I'm Christine Ogilvie-Hendron. And we're your hosts for Helium Podcast. If there's a topic or a guest you'd like us to cover, always feel free to email matt at teamhelium.co and or Christine at teamhelium.co to share your part of the conversation. On today's episode, we talk with Professor Tom Seeger. Tom is a Lincoln Fellow of Ethics and Sustainability and Associate Professor in the School of Sustainable Engineering and the Built Environment at Arizona State, and the guy who follows his own compass toward the bigger picture. I've had the pleasure to know Tom for a number of years, and conversations with him never fail to be thought-provoking and fun. Yeah, this one was no different, Christine. This episode is a crystal ball that all of our listeners should take a good look into. We did not want to stop this conversation, so we actually ended up making it into two parts. So the second half of this conversation is coming your way next week. So we'll publish the first half this week and the second half next Tuesday. All right, let's roll the first half of our great conversation with Tom Seeger. Hey, Tom, we're so happy to have you with us. It's my pleasure, Christine. Thanks. Tom, thank you for taking the time out today to talk to us. And usually with our guests, the first thing we want to do is give our audience a little bit of background about how to, how they came to be, what they're doing now. So maybe you could kind of fill us in and how you became a professor at Arizona State. I used to be a professor at Rochester Institute of Technology. And before then, I was a professor at Purdue University. So I moved around a little bit. Uh, looking for a university that will help me do what I want to do in sustainable engineering. The idea here is that sustainable engineering is the way to think about engineering the context of complex systems. The typical approach to engineering is to, for civil engineers, you define the limits of work. Uh, for electrical or mechanical engineers, you define the limits of the product. Um, and typically, the engineers do not consider the implications or, or anything outside of those constraints, which are at their limit. But sustainable engineering is challenging engineers to think in terms of complex systems and their emergent properties. That means is you can't just design and then leave it. You can't set and forget. And civil engineers, um, the way we're compensated, the way our profession is organized, are notorious for this mentality of design, build, uh, could be commission, for example, a building or a large civil engineering project, you make sure it's working right, and then you're done. And by done, we mean that this civil engineering work is in service for a century or more. It may transform society, but there's no mechanisms for adaptive learning or adaptation of the design or the infrastructure around the changing needs of society or the things that the, the infrastructure will, um, will cause to happen. That is, there is no feedback loop within the civil engineering profession as is practiced now, and sustainable engineering suggests 
that we recognize those feedback loops, change the way that engineers think and the way that engineering is practiced so that we can respond to them in this constant cycle of learning and adaptation. It's the transition from what churchmen called from team problems to what churchmen called wicked problems. That touches right there, Tom, on uh, you perfectly foreshadowed so many things that I was hoping to ask you specifically because, you know, just to back up, I know the first time that I met you, I was uh, at a conference. Um, it was a society for risk analysis and you were not supposed to be speaking and whoever didn't show up, didn't show up. And somebody called you on your cell phone and you came in, you know, four minutes after the start time and gave the most dynamic, interesting talk. Uh, the, uh, that I saw that whole conference and I thought, who is this person who's able to just kind of talk to real people, but also scientists and engineers. And, um, from there, you know, I've had the pleasure of getting to, uh, be at a variety of different places with you where we've talked about your approach. And one of the things that stuck with me, why I was thrilled you were willing to do this podcast is that I've heard you describe your own approach in terms of thinking way beyond the idea of checking boxes that other people set. So not thinking, how do I make tenure, but think more about what's the impact I want to make and finding a place that's going to understand that. And, um, you know, this often involves for you thinking outside, purposely outside the confines of traditional academic approaches, much like you just described helping individual engineering disciplines think outside the confines of one type of constraint. So could you give us some examples for people who are listening and thinking at the beginning of their career, maybe that's hard to imagine. How do they grow that vision of what they need? Because they're just so glad to have been allowed this first chance to try it. Could you give us examples of places that you have been able to do that and just guideposts for how you recommend approaching this uh, this way of life? There's a lot of things in your response that I want to touch on. And the first one is I'm so glad you remembered that talk at SRA. I think that was in Baltimore. And the person uh -huh. who called me was Igor Linkov, who's now a research scientist at the Army Corps. He's very active in the Society of Risk Analysis. And one of the things that Igor knows about me is that I advise all of my students to bring an extra talk to all of their conferences because someone will always cancel. And when there's an audience, you know, sitting around twiddling their thumbs for 15 or 20 minutes, it sort of breaks the momentum of the conference. It's an opportunity for the student to say, well, I have a talk. The expectations are usually pretty low because it's an impromptu talk, but it's still something that the student is expert in and they've prepared. Usually there's 10 or 12 minutes left by the time you sort it out, so it's a shorter talk than you might give if you had more notice, but it allows you to kind of um, preview what's important to you to an audience that might be really curious about who this person is with an impromptu talk. Since Igor knows that, that I advise my students that way, he, he called me up and said, Tom, you remember that impromptu talk that you uh, tell your students to do? Are you ready to do that? Why, yes, I am, Igor. And we I had the it. most fun with those 12 or 15 minutes because nobody was expecting anything except sort of uh, satisfaction of their curiosity. And I've gotten a lot of compliments on, on that moment since. I've seen my students do it as well. Uh, often, I mean, at my prompting, of course, 
but um, they also get compliments. So I think this is something that we should share with your entire audience. Always bring an extra talk. That's one. The other thing that you mentioned uh, was tenure, moving beyond the check boxes. And tenure is something that is probably on the minds of your audience that I talk with my former students quite a bit. It's, it's not a permanent, I mean, we talk about tenure in this hallowed sort of, uh, as if it was this long-lived historical institution, sacred kind of contract between um, the university and the faculty member with these moral implications. And people think about it that way. I'm not saying it's wrong to think of it that way, but I want to offer another perspective. Tenure is a fairly recent phenomenon. And by recent, I mean 20th century. And it solved a particular problem that the Industrial Revolution presented to the American university. The Industrial Revolution was founded on specialization of labor and economies of scale. When you divide up the tasks on the assembly line, and you um, focus the attention of what used to be the craftsman on just a particular, oh, I don't know, like Charlie Chaplin twisting nuts on a bolt or something like this. Productivity goes up and costs go down. When costs go down, it allows you to sell to more people. When you sell to more people, you can reinvest the profits in a larger factory and capture greater economies of scale, allowing you to further specialize tasks and drive costs down. So the Industrial Revolution, Ford's assembly line, the Model T, gave us this industrial um, image of production that created a positive feedback loop running from about the, well, before World War I to about the end of 1960, early 1970s. The positive feedback loop made our society rich, and it required the universities to organize themselves around the needs of the factory. Well, how should the universities do it? They modeled the factory. There was, in particular, specialization of labor, specialization of the disciplines, specialization of the faculty within the sub-sub-disciplines. The metaphor for organizing knowledge at the time dates all the way back to Aristotle. It was the metaphor of the tree. And so each individual doctoral student was like a new leaf growing at the branch or at the twig on the branch of the end of some subdisciplinary tree. And this specialization allowed the universities to grow. Although once you get big enough to field a D1 football team, I'm not sure that there are more economies of scale, but the <laughs> universities grow. Uh, the specialization of labor allows them to enhance their reputations, but it creates a problem for the individual faculty member. The problem is that you become so specialized, you're the world's foremost expert in something like, I don't know, uh, canal hydrology. And then the next thing you know, someone invents the steam engine and the railroad, and nobody needs your canal expertise. The university was expecting its faculty to fit into the education factory as if they were factory workers and be extremely specialized. This helped them uh, build a reputation, and it helped the faculty who did this successfully have this sort of world's foremost expert status, but it comes with enormous career risk. 
tenure resolves the career risk problem for the faculty member. It says, look, if you work on this thing for seven years and you become the world's foremost expert in the vacuum tube, then I will guarantee you a minimum salary for the rest of your life. Because after the transistor is invented, we understand the world won't need vacuum tube experts anymore. We understand that you'll be out of a job and you'll be teaching sort of sophomore level statics or fluid mechanics or something for the rest of your life, and it's okay. We will de-risk that specialization for you. And faculty bought into that. They sold it as if it were a moral or ethical position associated with academic integrity. And I'm not saying that it isn't. That's not wrong. It can be that, but it spread so fast because it solved a specific problem at a time when we had a shortage of qualified faculty members. Now, we're in a post-industrial age. Not everybody, but a lot of people. In my field, sustainability is about grappling with the problems that the industrial age gave us. The industrialization of the economy solved starvation. We industrialized the farm. And we say, we're going to push corn yields up to levels that were never imagined before. Terrific. Except now we have a problem of diabetes and heart disease. Well, industrial, uh, industrialization solved the problem of material scarcity. Except now we have a problem of litter and pollution. Every single problem that the Industrial Revolution saw has resulted in new problems that we're now grappling with. And sustainability is a post-industrial discipline. The old model of specialization doesn't work. The tenure doesn't solve a problem that sustainability scholars have. So sustainability scholars can look at tenure and say, I want that. I want that job security. I want that academic freedom. I want the ethics of tenure. And they sometimes have to decide whether they want that more than they want to make a difference in the world. Because sustainability, like engineering, has this normative view that the world should be different than it is. The job of the engineer is to cross the bridge between science and fiction. Science is about the truth and describing the world the way it is, and fiction is about imagining the world the way it could be. The engineer, when they're participating in design, their job is to make the world conform to their imagination. They use science to change the world. And sustainable engineering has this normative ideal that the world the way it is is not the way we want it to be, that these wicked problems that have come out of the Industrial Revolution require us to organize knowledge in accordance with a different metaphor. Instead of the tree with its specialized branches, the metaphor for knowledge in the post-industrial age is the web. And we see this all, I mean, we don't have to talk about the World Wide Web, although it's ubiquitous and we understand it. We see knowledge spontaneously reorganizing itself around problems or challenges. When I was at Purdue, we had an engineering library. We had a law library. We had a humanities library. And I think they all still exist. I visited several libraries at other campuses, and I'm noticing a trend for consolidation of these libraries, that is, bringing all the different library branches under one electronic roof. And I don't know anybody who actually goes to the library. Instead, we go to Scholar Google, or we go to Web of Science, and we have different ways of organizing and aggregating the scholarly output. 
that used to be in disciplinary journals and branch libraries and now is accessible to everyone. So the sustainability scholar has to get out of their department, get off their branch, get off their leave, give up some of the protections of the discipline and be able to um, thread the web of knowledge from branch to branch so that it's organized around the problems that they're trying to resolve. That's how they make a difference in the world. There's a lot to unpack there, but I think one of the things that I want to go back to is thinking about this industrial mindset and how tenure got started. Because one of the questions we had for you is you've written a lot about the business mindset of the university administration. Mm -hmm. And we were, you know, given what you just said in terms of the context of because I don't think that just applies sustainability scholars. I would make the case that that applies to almost all scientists because they all have to start thinking in that way. Uh, even if they're, even if their title or their department doesn't say sustainability on it. And so from the, from the university business administration standpoint, right, they're all trying to survive and become sustainable as a university. So what would be your advice for a young faculty member who wants to both take your advice, but also understand the mindset of those university administrators uh, in order for her and him, or her, her or him to be more successful in their, in their young career? Each person has to decide what success means to them. Success could mean um, climbing the career ladder to an, a full professorship, uh, doing some service as a department chair, becoming an administrator, and I don't want to take that definition of success away from anyone. Um, success could mean something else. It could mean creating knowledge that makes a difference in the world. We are not typically at our universities judged on whether we make a difference in the world. We're judged on whether we make a difference in the library. How many people cite that article? How many people read or download that article? What are the bibliometric measures of the success? And that's okay because the universities are in the knowledge business, uh, journal articles and books. Uh, these are examples of knowledge products, and we want to know which of those knowledge products are popular and interesting to people. But engineering isn't really about the library. It's about what does the knowledge do for us? How does it empower us to make the world a better place? And I agree with you that it's not just sustainability. That's my chosen field, so I don't want to speak for others. But let's talk about biomedical engineering as a good example. Biomedical engineers don't just create knowledge for the sake of getting citations. Presumably, uh, if you're working on an artificial pancreas, you want to do that so that people can live healthier, longer, higher quality lives. Makes sense to me that yeah. what I'm saying extends to other disciplines. So advice for, um, for new faculty, the university is Finishing The university is an institution, not any particular university, but this larger body of academia. It's finishing a period that has been incredibly stable. And it might give young people starting their careers the illusion that this stability is normal and it will be long-lasting. But one of the things that um, Michael Crow, uh, the president at Arizona State University, likes to point out is that 
the American university has been reinvented several times. It used to start, you know, way back in Jefferson's day. It was sort of a social finishing school for the upper classes. And you learned Greek and Latin and things that gentlemen were expected to know back then. It morphed, in particular, in response to the Land Grant Act, 1862, which created a mechanism for founding new universities dedicated to the practical arts. It changed in the late 19th century, and then it changed again in response to Vannevar Bush's report, Science, the Endless Frontier. That was 1945 or 44, I can't remember, but he wrote this report to President Roosevelt, and he said, what we need are research-motivated, research-focused universities. And society, at least American society, was ready for that. They looked at the success of the Manhattan Project in inventing the atomic bomb. And they said, hey, we could go to the moon. There was this growth of emphasis on research-focused universities after World War II that reached a peak of technological optimism somewhere around the 1969 moon landing or shortly afterward. So... The university, even though it is kind of coming out of this remarkably stable period, is more fluid, more plastic than uh, people starting their careers might think it really is. The question is, what kind of universities are we going to have when people starting their careers now are finishing their careers? And I'm thinking it's going to be different in a lot of ways. It is partly the new challenges that we face, these post-industrial challenges, and it's partly the technologies that have come out of the Industrial Revolution, in particular information communication technologies. Looking at the music industry is a great example. Michael Jackson's Thriller was a famous video back in the 80s. Now we don't really have MTV the way we used to be, and it was the... The album was the best-selling album. Well, it just got eclipsed by the Eagle. And I think that's hilarious because the new best-selling album actually came out, what, 10, 15 years before the old best-selling album did. The point is that technology amplifies this phenomenon called preferential attachment, where the most popular things become even more popular. If there's no recording of music, then the only way that we enjoy music is locally and live. And musicians can kind of make a living doing local and live performances. But now that we can record and broadcast music, it pushes the rewards to the best and most popular musician. It changes the curve of compensation. The same thing is already happening in the university. Those people who, those lecturers who are most charismatic, who are most popular, attract more attention through the online education mode than they would if we didn't have online education. Back when the only way to go to class was to sit in the classroom, we needed lots of instructors distributed all over the United States. That's changing. More students are getting their calculus education from Sal Khan than the model in the 1980s which was to sit in an enormous lecture hall of 300 people and watch your instructor do example problems on the board. It's going to increasingly, as far as education goes, um, move that curve to the people who are the most popular, the most entertaining. 
they will get the most attention and the algorithms will continue to point towards what they're broadcasting. And that's uh, a bit scary for a young faculty member because if you can't push yourself into the top of that curve, you may lose your livelihood, especially for those who depend upon teaching. So how do we restructure what universities do to create to archive and disseminate knowledge so that the end of the career for a new faculty member is as rewarding as the beginning of the career. That is itself a design challenge. The university isn't going to look like a, a land-grant, residential, remote rural university, like those that, that Purdue used to be, or um, a similar institution, University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Increasingly, the university is going to be urban. It's going to um, serve a wider range of populations. Many of those are not going to want full-time immersive education, and yet they're still going to want knowledge because our society is already a knowledge economy. It's the constant pace of producing new knowledge that creates new value. So we're caught in this world where the knowledge, that, which is the business the university is in, more important than ever. The mechanisms by which universities and individual faculty are going to be rewarded for that knowledge are undergoing change. Because I feel like there are so many different ways that you can envision not only how it's going to change, but uh, something that I think I've always taken from uh, talking with you is that, yes, these trends are changing and the incentives are changing. The metrics are going to have to change. It's going to be messy because it's a systems level adjustment, right? And uh, a lot of people can point to the problems of that. Okay, so, you know, open scholarship there, there's going to be sea changes, tectonic changes in how we share knowledge, what is incentivized, how do we collaborate, all of these things. But you always seem to have a way to look at how that is going to bring out the best and how can an individual researcher kind of change what they strive to put their energy into so that that all ends up bettering the way that we generate and share knowledge for a sustainable world. Because um, it's easy to think wow, the system is not fitting. You know, we're getting like too big for our shell type of a thing. We don't, we, it's going to have to be different. You've been listening to episode 12 of Helium Podcasts. The show notes for this episode can be found at www.teamhelium.co slash episode 12. On the show notes, we'll also put a link to Tom Seeger's medium.com profile. So you can go there and check out all the great articles he's been writing on medium.com. As we noted during the episode, we'll split this episode into two parts. So next week, we're going to release episode 13 with the second half of this episode talking about mentoring. The music for this episode was provided by Michael Blake, who can be found at mblakemusic.com. And the show was created and produced by Christine Ogilvie Hendren and me, Matt Hotze. Thanks for sticking around, guys. We really appreciate your support of the podcast. If you know someone who can benefit from this information, please don't hesitate to share the podcast right in your app or via the email that we send out each week to let you know about the new episodes. Thanks for joining us again, and we look forward to seeing you next week. 
Take care.